All right. Hey, everyone. Should we do this unscripted? Why not? Let's do it. Unscripted. Okay, so how's everyone enjoying the zombie apocalypse? This is, uh, this is a really weird time, isn't it? I did venture out to uh, the supermarket. Was it uh, yesterday or the day before? It was Friday night. Yeah, I remember now. Uh, yes, that's how exciting my life is, food shopping on a Friday night. But, uh, you know, the feeling that I was in some kind of dystopian sci-fi movie made it a little more exciting. Uh, it, it is really like everyone is saying. I went to a supermarket and it was really kind of eerie. The, uh, many of the shelves, many of the aisles were completely bare. Uh, the, the paper goods, like the toilet paper, uh, paper towels, completely gone. Uh, the water aisle, all the water was gone. The only thing left was like some of the big jugs you'd put in a water cooler and some of the, you know, like the fancy, uh, you know, the, the long bottles of uh, specialty water or whatever, which I bought some of. I like uh, smart water. They, they had a few of those left. And I was joking because I, I talked about this on the most recent episode of the Patreon bonus show, which I recorded yesterday. That, you know, I have a sweet tooth. And so I was like, oh, you know, all right, this is my lucky day. Because the no, there's all these barren shelves and aisles. And then the holiday aisle where they keep all the holiday candy, all the Easter candies out now. That was like completely untouched, like fully stocked, like it would be at you know any other time. I'm like, all right, I, I can make this work. Um, the produce was like completely gone. All the vegetables, all the fruit, just everything was gone. And I, I made a joke. I, I posted on Facebook. I'm like, this is the saddest thing an Italian-American can see. It was the pasta aisle. Everything was gone. All the pasta was gone except for like two boxes of uh, pot, like the flat rectangular pasta you use for lasagna. And I mentioned this on the bonus show too. I'm a Italian American, and I've never had lasagna in my life for some bizarre reason. Um, my family has been trying to get me to eat it forever, but for for some <laughs> most likely irrational or neurotic reason, I'm just afraid to try it. I'm a really picky eater. And I also mentioned on the bonus show how you know I did that um, episode, you know, a few shows back, that like three hour unscripted episode on animal welfare. And how I decide to make, you know, try to make a change or phase out how much or how many animal products I use or consume. And I've been sticking with that. And so I've switched over to non-dairy, quote-unquote, ice cream. Uh, I was saying how it it's, makes me feel a little uneasy that they just vaguely refer to it on the, on the carton as a frozen dessert. Not quite ice cream, just a frozen dessert. And I usually buy the uh, Ben and Jerry's. And they had some of that left. But there's these vegan yakisoba noodles, like pre-steamed, that I love. Teriyaki. Teriyaki. Teriyaki, lass. Teriyaki. Teriyaki flavored. I can talk. This is what happens when you go unscripted. Even before I decided to really try to make a move towards, you know, veganism... 
I used to love these things just for the taste of them. So I'm like, oh, I'm probably one of the only weirdos that actually goes to the store and gets these things. But no, those were completely gone. No uh, yakisoba noodles. And it's no, not well. It's kind of weird because I, I under, I understand why people were mostly focusing on like dry goods, non-perishable items, because people are afraid that um, they're either gonna self-quarantine themselves, or you know they're not want they're they're going to be afraid to go out in public, um, you know, for fear that they might catch the uh, the coronavirus. Uh, COVID-19, however you want to refer to it. So I understand that. If you're afraid you're going to be stuck indoors for uh, indefinitely, you know, for maybe several weeks to a month, two months, who knows, it makes sense that you aren't going to want to stock up on non-perishable goods or dry goods. So it seemed kind of weird to me that all the produce was gone. But on the other hand, like the baked goods, the bakery uh, aisle... That looked fine, like it would at any other time. Uh, and I actually did. I bought a package of hermit cookies. I love those things. And uh, only to realize when I got home and read the ingredients after I had eaten them that I think there was uh, some milk or dairy in them. But yeah, I've been... And, and yeah, I also mentioned uh, the produce and everything was gone, but the like the hot section with like the prepared foods, like the little sacks of little baggies of uh, chicken wings and chicken tenders and stuff that was still there. And I said how I, like fried or breaded chicken used to be one for most of my life, one of my favorite things. And I think I've just gone without so long in regards to uh, fried foods, like fried meat and stuff that I didn't really feel like interested in it. So not only have I, for ethical reason, reasons, been trying to get away from meat, but also it just kind of seemed weird or off-putting. All around was barren, you know, empty shelves and bins. But then there were still these greasy bags of whatever underneath a heat lamp. So it wasn't that appetizing, you know. And I talked about how, on the Bone Show, I was talking about how... Um, even before I had decided for ethical reasons to try to get away from meat, I would find myself eating like animal products and kind of getting grossed. And this is like my whole life probably grossed out at certain times. Like, you know, that the naked lunch moment where you're about to drink milk or pour it in your cereal. And even though cereal with milk might be one of your favorite foods, you know, all of a sudden it really hits you that this is the discharge from another, an, an animal of another species, an animal that's probably walking around in not the most hygienic of conditions, uh, swatting flies away with its tail, probably a dirty backside, uh, you know, dirt and mud or whatever on it. I don't even know if necessarily dirt on their hooves. When they come from factory farms, I think the animals are kept on like concrete sometimes. But you know what I mean. And then like... Um, I used to get like kind of grossed out thinking about eggs too. Like I I would love the taste of eggs, but then when I thought about where they came from and like I remember hearing this story when I was young from from one of my aunts that supposedly she had cracked open an egg an egg one time and there was um there was still an, like a bird embryo inside it or something like some gross story like that. And I've told that to other people and they say oh she was probably make, making it up. But my aunts always seemed very honest and not the type of person to just, you know, spin a yarn, spin a yarn or make something up. And I'm sure that must happen every once in a while. 
Granted, probably not from one of these big egg companies, in fairness, where they most likely use artificial insemination and there's not a rooster in sight, unless it's like the uh, chicken equivalent of the Virgin Mary or something. But, but um, you know, maybe it could happen with a smaller operation, a kind of mom and pop type of thing. Uh, and if it, ha if it really did happen to my aunt, this would have been a long time ago. Um, but still kind of gross to think about it and it touches a nerve. I, my whole life, you know, whenever I've been cracking open eggs, I'm always, part of me is afraid of what might be in there. Yeah. And, and what else used to, uh, gross me out? Oh, like fried chicken. Like another reason why I didn't, you know, give in and buy the fried chicken. Like I said, breaded or fried chicken was always like one of my favorite foods. But once in a while, I'd still get kind of skeeved out. Like I, I was saying last night, like half joking about how underneath, you know, that crisp, crunchy coating, it's like, who knows what's waiting for you under there? It's kind of like mystery meat. Who knows if like the bird had something wrong with it or, and sometimes you, you will eat like fried chicken and something looks kind of funky with the meat, you know? So I noticed that's one kind of positive thing with moving away from animal products is I don't have to deal with that kind of, you know, that psycho negative psychological aspect of eating meat. And I'm not trying to paint myself, you know, as some kind of saint. Cause like I said on the bonus show, I don't know if I'll ever be completely vegan. You know what I mean? I can't promise you that I won't give in and have turkey on Thanksgiving or that I won't decide to have you know, a bit of chocolate and, you know, it's got some dairy in it. Most chocolate is made with some degree of milk, you know, unless you buy um, vegan chocolate that's maybe made with like coconut or almond milk, or you buy really dark chocolate, you know, that doesn't have any dairy in it at all. So I, I can't promise myself or you guys that I'll, I won't, you know, have a moment of weakness or that I won't like eat something. But I feel like I have made some pretty big steps. Like I said, I've switched over from ice cream to non-dairy frozen dessert. And uh, I was saying how the two flavors I like best are the almond, the Ben and Jerry's almond brittle, but it's, it's made with almond milk. And when you first start digging into a carton, it's almost sickeningly sweet. It's like a different kind of sweet than ice cream made with dairy, but then you get kind of used to it, but they have a fudge brownie flavor that tastes exactly like regular chocolate ice cream. And so that's like, it feels like it's not even a trade-off. It's like, it tastes just as good as regular ice cream. And then I made the jump from, uh, from, you know, cow milk to almond milk. And it, I, I was joking about, you know, telling the story about how when I first tried Silk, you know, that, that uh, non-dairy um, brand, I accidentally bought a kind that had not just almond milk in it, but it was also made with like pea milk and cashews. And I don't eat peas and I don't eat cashews. And like I pour a bowl of cereal, the first spoonful I taste, I just like automatic, my automatic reaction is I spit it out and dump the bowl out. I think I might have just been psychologically freaked out by the idea that had pea and not, that's not really bad, it had pea in it, but you know, pea, the vegetable that had pea milk in it and, uh, and cashew milk. And, you know, also it was the first time I tasted any kind of quote unquote milk that wasn't dairy in my whole life. But I decided to try again, so I bought just, you know, pure almond milk, but it, it 
I say pure, but it had a, a vanilla flavoring to it. So it was vanilla almond milk and silk was the brand. And no, they do not sponsor the show. And, uh, and I tried that and I found that I like it better than cow milk. Um, it gives you like the same taste experience as cow milk. You know, it's cold. It has some of that same kind of mouth feel. And yet I love vanilla and it has this like vanilla flavoring on top of it. And it, I actually like the sweetness of the, uh, the almond milk as far as, you know, um, as far as uh, eating cereal with it. For some reason, that almond brittle ice cream, I don't know what it is, like the first couple of spoonfuls, the sweetness is kind of a turnoff. It's like a weird sweetness, but then you get used to it and you find yourself digging away at it. But um, yeah, so that's my... Uh, my whole story with that. And so I made a little promise to myself, like this little loophole. I'm like, I'm not going to buy dairy or meat anymore. But loophole, if someone, if I'm somewhere like a family gathering or a party and someone offers me something, you know, like meat or something, yeah, maybe I'll have some. And that way, it's like I'm not completely going without. But at the same time, I'm kind of... um I'd like to think being ethical in the sense that I'm making sure that my personal money is not supporting the dairy and meat industries, you know? Um, and, and if you missed that long three hour unscripted episode I did on animal welfare, um, you, you might be wondering what's wrong with eggs and dairy. And, um, in theory, I don't think there's anything wrong with eggs and dairy if there was some ideal condition where the animals were treated well. But there's things like uh, maceration, you know, when ch chickens are artificially inseminated usually with these big factory farms or whatever. So they don't really need a surplus or whatever of male chicks. So the chicks get what's called sexed when they're born and the male chicks are thrown into something called a, a macerator where they're just like thrown into these whirling blades and chewed up alive. Um, and with dairy, dairy cows are continually inseminated and impregnated so they can continue to give milk. And when they're no longer producing at optimal levels or whatever, they're sold off for, you know, hamburger meat or whatever. Uh, that's uh, that's at least why I heard one source say that. Um, usually the, the cows that have been around for a while and just can't really produce like they used to will end up going to, you know, make fast food hamburger. Not cows making fat. Imagine that. Uh, bipedal cows making hamburgers for you behind the counter. No, like the cows that, you know, they end up hamburger meat. Um, and often the male calves will be killed on the first day of life, you know, bolted in the head. Um, or they'll be used for veal or they'll be allowed to live a little longer and they're sold off as uh, meat, you know. So, yeah, if, if eggs and dairy, and I actually looked into I can't believe how long I'm talking about this. I, I told myself I was going to talk about this um, on the main show. Um, I actually looked into <laughs> this farm run by Harry uh, Harry Krishnas <laughs> that supposedly sells like eth make produces ethical dairy. Uh, none none of the cows are turned over for slaughter or anything like that. And there's just a small amount of you know a small manageable amount of animals. So the animals can be treated well and, you know, um, and I actually looked into that cause I was going to buy like 
cheese, like cheese from these places to make like pizza and stuff. Cause pizza is one of my favorite foods. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with that. Um, yeah. So originally this episode was going to be a scripted little episode on Stuart Hammeroff and microtubules. And no, that isn't like a new wave band, Stuart Hammeroff and the microtubules. Um, it was, had to be like, oh, it was a long time ago. And I actually looked it up. It was a talk that, or a lecture that took place back in 2011 at Chapman University on the nature of reality. And if you're interested, you can actually find it um, on iTunes or whatever. Um, well, now, didn't, uh, I think Apple, at least on the Mac platform, they broke everything up. Now, podcasts, uh, music, um, that's all separate. And, and movies, I, I think. So, um, yeah, so you can probably find it using the podcast app on your Mac or the podcast app on uh, your mobile, Apple mobile device. But, yeah, I watched this a long time ago, and every once in a while I'll revisit it because it's really interesting. It's called uh, The Nature of Reality or On the Nature of Reality. And it's this live kind of panel discussion. And there's Michael Shermer, uh, Leonard, is it Miladnow? I forget his name. This uh, famous high-profile uh, quantum physicist. Um, and they're kind of on the more mainstream science skeptical side. Then you have Deepak Chopra. Uh, you have this guy, Stuart Hameroff. And there's also other panelists as well. And Stuart Hameroff is an anesthesiologist. I had to stop myself for a moment. I was almost going to say esthetician. I believe that's a beauty expert. Um, yeah, he's an uh, anesthesiologist. Born July 16th, 1947. Um, he's a professor at the University of Arizona. Arizona, um, yeah. And so this gives a little brief summary of why I want to cover, you know, cover this on the show. And this is something I want to do for a really long time. And uh, so, yeah, I'll read this. He's known for his studies of consciousness and his controversial contention that consciousness originates from quantum states and neural microtubules. He is the lead organizer of the Science of Consciousness Conference. And so it's really kind of interesting trying to get a beat on the guy because um, he's a professor at a well-known university. Uh, he's often partnered. Um, is They kind of share this, um, this theory or whatever hypothesis regarding consciousness that they've uh, worked on together. Uh, Roger Penrose, who's a very renowned uh, English mathematical physicist. Um, and so I respect the fact that the guy's an anesthesiologist, and some people might not think an anesthesiologist is a doctor, you know, on par or is, you know, on the same level of prestige as an MD. But I believe uh, an anesthesiologist is considered a physician, and obviously they must have to go through a lot of medical training, a whole lot more. So this guy has a whole lot more education than I do, you know. And um, so I respect that about him. He, he's a professor at a well-known university. Like I said, he's partnered with Roger Penrose. But at the same time, you know, my kind of baloney detector or woo-woo alarm goes off when I listen to him talk. Because um, he'll rattle off these strings of quantum 
physics terms, you know what I mean, that sound like gobbledygook to me. I only, in, in fairness, I only have a very meager kind of layman's knowledge of quantum physics or quantum mechanics. So I try to approach this with due humility and keep in mind that, you know, a lot of why maybe I'm not able to follow what he's talking about is because <laughs> he knows more about it than I do. Um, and yet, uh, Leonard Mladenow and uh, Michael Shermer bo both kind of push back on him during this lecture and accuse him of kind of peddling, at least in regard to his, you know, his um, his conjecture on consciousness and quantum theory that he's kind of going out of his wheelhouse and kind of, you know, entering the realm of pseudoscience with the way he's trying to push these theories, which have been, you know, dubbed uh, kind of fringe, controversial. And he was kind of like, he, in fairness to him, he said he doesn't completely agree with Deepak Chopra. And the way he said it, he said he doesn't agree with Michael Shermer that, you know, consciousness is an emerging property of the brain, you know. And, um, but at the same time, he doesn't agree with Deepak Chopra that consciousness is everything. But he does kind of show his hand later on in this talk um, where he is kind of talking about how his theory that there may be a quantum mechanical explanation for consciousness. And you know how quantum physics gets kind of weird and spooky when you get down to the subatomic or supramolecular level, all sorts of, you know, quantum non-locality and that kind of thing. And often you'll hear a lot of kind of, you know, airy-fairy, new-agey kind of um, uh, woo-woo types, I guess. I hate that term woo-woo, but it's used a lot and people know what you mean by it. You know, people who have kind of flighty, pseudoscientific uh beliefs or whatever. Um, and a lot of people will kind of, those kinds of people will kind of try to hijack quantum physics for their own use, you know? And uh, as I think uh, a couple of people were saying in that, um, in that talk that people will say, well, quantum mechanics is kind of weird and spooky. Consciousness is weird, spooky. So it's easy for people to try to connect the two and say there's something there, you know? And I guess I should probably note, in fairness to Stuart Hameroff, that there are actual quantum physicists out there who do think that there may be a connection between consciousness and quantum physics. Or, you know, if you take into consideration things like superposition and quantum entanglement, that there may somehow be some fertile ground for a model of consciousness there, you know? But then you kind of have to be careful because there may be a thin line between that and what's deemed uh, or labeled quantum mysticism, which is a kind of pseudoscience or pseudoscientific movement. Uh, but anyway, back to Hameroff. So what his theory is specifically is that there's these things called microtubules, these little structures in the... Um, in the cytoskeleton of a eukaryotic cell. And maybe I should look that up just to make sure I'm not talking out my arse. Microtubule. 
Microtubule, uh, yeah, right, I can talk. Microtubules are polymers of tubulin that form part of the cytoskeleton and provide structure and, sh and shape to eukaryotic cells. All right, yeah, so I was close. Um, so he thinks that there may be this kind of quantum activity within the microtubules of you know, the neurons or nerve cells of the brain that are responsible, at least in part, for consciousness. And he doesn't believe that, like I said before, that consciousness is an emergent property of the brain. And I, I've always said that, you know, I love spirituality and I love, you know, like studying things like Buddhism and Zen and Eastern philosophy, uh, the so-called perennial philosophy, the this idea that everything is one, the ground of all being, uh, everything is a manifestation of the Godhead, that kind. I, I've always been fascinated by that stuff, but I, I say, you know, at the end of the day, as a skeptic, it's not what I want to be true, but unless you show me evidence otherwise, it seems to me that most likely, unfortunately, consciousness is an emergent property of the brain, meaning that when the brain goes, you know, that that us, that awareness, you know, the mind, whatever, that we consider to be ourselves, that goes too, you know. And uh, I used to, you know, I don't want to beat a dead horse. Well, I'm, I'm edging my way towards veganism, so I certainly can't beat a dead horse. Uh, or can you? Is it still animal cruelty if it's dead? And I know very well I'm employing a figure of speech, so why am I pretending it's literal for the sake of a joke? I don't know. I might be losing my mind. But... <laughs> But anyway, um, you know, I, I've just I've said this ad nauseum on the show before. The reasons why I, I tend to think that consciousness is most likely most likely an emergent property of the brain is that we know there's a direct correlation between the physical brain and consciousness. And we know that, you know, if a certain part of the brain is damaged, you can see the effect that has on uh, a, a person's functioning or their personality uh, damage the frontal lobe. You could have trouble with um, impulse control. Damage another part. You could have a, you know a trouble with uh, you could have trouble with memory. Um, when you know when we look at things like um, degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, different types of sin, uh, senile dementia. I mean, it's like we can see the person. The, the, their personality deteriorating, um, you know, disappearing before our eyes. You can end up with someone who can't even recognize, you know, the face of a loved one or, or something like that, um, or doesn't even know where they are or whatever. And I said, I've always said, you know, if I wanted to play devil's advocate, and you know, cause I, I like to kind of try to test the metal of my own beliefs or assumptions or whatever by coming up with, you know, the toughest counter-argument I can. And in the case of, you know, consciousness not being an emergent property of the brain, I've mentioned on the show before how, you know, uh, I'm an Aldous Huxley fan. And, you know, I, when I was a kid, I, a kid, you know, my teens, I read uh, his book, The Doors of Perception slash Heaven and Hell, where he describes consciousness as being, you know, kind of like in keeping with the perennial philosophy that there is this kind of universal consciousness or universal mind out there. 
that transcends, you know, the individual brain. And he talks about how drugs, psychedelic drugs like uh, mescaline, LSD, etc., can act as a kind of way the crank open, the kind of valve that keeps our conscious experience limited. Like, I forget what he calls it, like a consciousness reducer valve or something. That in our day-to-day lives, we can't be walking around constantly mind-blown like we're on a, an acid trip, you know what I mean? Um, so only, you know, consciousness trickles in. He talks about the brain as if it's a receiver for consciousness, not the actual source of consciousness. So, it's in, you know, in his view, it wasn't an emergent property of the brain, at least not in the uh, argument he puts forth in The Doors of Perception. And yes, that is where the uh, doors got their name. And Huxley got, got it from a William Blake poem. Uh, I think the line reads something like, when the doors of perception are cleansed, Men, men or men will see things as they truly are infinite. Um, I'm paraphrasing. And so his kind of theory was that, uh, I know I'm, pro- I used to kind of lecture on the show about how, you know, this kind of rigid interpretation of how you should use theory and how you should use hypothesis. And so I might be using the layman's use of theory here, but his theory was that, um, psychedelic drugs kind of cranked open that consciousness reducer valve and allowed you to kind of commune with the mind at large, you know, that kind of universal mind, collective consciousness, uh, the Godhead ground of all being. Actually, I think collective consciousness is more of a sociological term. For like years and years, I've always had this tendency to want to use it as synonymous with uh, universal mind or whatever. But, you know, this kind of metaphysical idea of this kind of cosmic oneness or cosmic consciousness. And I'm not saying I believe that. You guys pretty much know where I stand. Although I'm a, I'm attracted by these kinds of ideas and I've always been fascinated by spirituality. At the end of the day, uh, I'm kind of a, um, a secular materialist or whatever. Uh, I believe in you know, the merit of empirical data, um, scientific evidence, etc. Um, so my, my guess is, yeah, I think consciousness probably is just an emergent property of the brain. But if I had to come up with a counter argument, you know, I, I can't disprove, I can't, you know, I can't disprove a hundred percent that consciousness isn't, um, that the brain isn't a receiver of consciousness. So, and consciousness is some kind of universal thing, you know? Um, but I have strong doubts, but Stuart Hameroff, like I said, once again, uh, does not believe that consciousness is an emergent property of the brain. And he does kind of move into this woo woo territory and he goes in far to talk. He goes as far as to talk about this story. It was in the news and on like, you know, the discovery channel and things like that. Uh, uh, years back, there's a case of this kid who supposedly was a reincarnated fighter pl- uh, pilot and supposedly had all of this knowledge that, he could only know if he really was the reincarnation of this, you know, deceased pilot. And I think I'm, I, I did a whole show on reincarnation once. And I think I may have 
um, gone into that story and spelled out why, you know, it doesn't hold water. And he, he, he brings up that story and talks about how he believes that the kid truly was reincarnated and that according to his theory, that consciousness is, um, at least in part, uh, created by quantum activity in these microtubules that he thinks consciousness could survive according to quantum mechanical rules or whatever and find its way back into the mic find its way back into the microtubules of a child you know so like this guy's consciousness somehow survives death and there's a quantum explanation for it and it kind of gets downloaded into a new person into a child's microtubules and that's kind of uh an explanation for reincarnation so kind of woo-woo stuff but at the same time you know uh i have a very layman's understanding of quantum mechanics quantum physics so i want to try to maintain maintain some degree of humility while talking about this stuff and not seem overly skeptical but i will say that um leonard maladnow uh and i'll look him up real quick just so i can give you his you know specific title Leonard Maladnow, born uh, November 26, 1954. There's a little uh, factoid. Uh, he is um, a mathemat... Yeah, his field is... His specific field is mathematical physics. Uh, and the institutions he's um, associated with or affiliated with, the Max Planck Institute for Physics, California Institute of Technology. Um, and it says his, uh, his big influence was Richard Feynman. And he basically, so this is an actual uh, mathematical physicist. And he turns to Leonard Manat, yeah, he turns to himself. He turns to Stuart Hameroff and looks right at him and he says, you know, as a physicist, these sentences that you string together with these uh, quantum physics terms, to him as a actual uh, quantum physicist, it sounds like Greek spoken backwards, I think were the exact words he used. It, it, it sounds like gobbledygook. So here he is, an actual physicist saying, the way, way you're, you know, stringing together these, maybe there's a good reason why I can't keep up with what uh, Stuart Hameroff, Hameroff is saying. It's because um, even to an actual physicist, what he's, what he's saying sounds something like pseudoscientific gobble, gobbledygook. You know what I mean? And he kind of um he he kind of pointed that same kind of accusation at Deepak Chopra too, kind of um accused both of them of what I was talking about earlier, of kind of hijacking uh quantum physics for or, or the quantum phys physics uh terminology to support their own kind of woo-woo, airy fairy, um, new agey beliefs, you know. But the reason why I didn't do a whole episode on that was because I felt like I couldn't in good conscience because in fairness to Hameroff, I don't know enough about quantum physics or quantum theory to be able to debunk what he's saying with any certainty, you know? Um, so, I mean, I will say that. But yeah, if you want to, you know, look it up, the nature of reality. Like I said, you should be able to find it in iTunes or in um, the Apple Podcast app. Um, 
But yeah, my kind of BS detector goes off when I listen to him talk. And, and that's not saying I think he's he's being dishonest. Uh, as far as I can tell, he believes what he's saying. But I think it's probably a case of someone who wants to believe, you know, and they're kind of clinging on to this explanation that allows them to uh, still be able to cling to some sort of idea that... Uh, that consciousness survives death or whatever. Um, and I'm not inside his head, so I don't know if he secretly has any doubts or whatever, but the feeling I get when listening to him is he's someone that wants to believe. And he, you know, does his best to convince himself that this theory he cooked up is accurate. I mean, in a way, I hope he's right, because it would be pretty cool if consciousness survives death, you know? I just have my doubts, and, uh, you know, I'm like... I'm going to need more evidence before uh, I believe that to be the case. And it's funny. I thought this might end up being like a 20-minute episode. And if I scripted it, it might have been. Uh, but, you know, I've been kind of short on time recently. And I also know sometimes you guys actually, some of you out there actually prefer the uh, unscripted episode. So, hey, what are you going to do? Almost approaching the 40-minute uh, mark now. And, and there were a couple of stories I was going to cover just uh, cases of kind of shysters, uh, <laughs> you know, taking advantage of the uh, the coronavirus um, hysteria or whatever. And it's rightly to be concerned, so hysteria might be the wrong word. But uh, one of them is Alex Jones and the other is um, Jim Baker. And so you guys have been listening to the show for a long time. You might be aware of my kind of uh, feelings about Alex Jones. I mean, I don't really ever agree with what comes out of his mouth. And uh, I think, you know, the way he handled the Sandy Hook thing was like way over the line. Um, taking, you know, this tragedy, uh, these uh, murdered children and spinning one of his lurid conspiracy theories around it, you know? Um, all that being said, I have to admit, I do find, and as I think a lot of people who, you know, don't agree with him at all, but a lot of people seem to just, it's something about the guy, they find him entertaining. He's this wild kind of uh, over-the-top figure, and he is entertaining to watch, you know what I mean? Um, so there's that. But anyway, so this is from the New York Times. It says, Alex Jones is told to stop selling sham anti-coronavirus toothpaste. Mr. Jones, who had used his radio show and website to promote conspiracy theories, is falsely claiming his products can fight the virus. The New York State Attorney General has issued a cease and desist order to Alex Jones, the conservative radio host, alarmed by false claims on his website that his diet supplements and toothpaste could be used to fight the coronavirus. Mr. Jones, according to the Attorney General, made a series of claims that his products could act as a quote-unquote stopgate against the virus that his super blue brand of toothpaste quote-unquote kills the whole SARS-Corona family at point-blank range. And I think, yeah, you know, what they say that uh, the coronavirus is kind of like SARS-2 electric boogaloo. Um, there are no products, vaccines, or drugs approved to treat or cure the virus. 
As the disease spreads across the United States, so too has online misinformation in the marketing of fraudulent products that claim to prevent the coronavirus. Presenting government officials with a new frontier in their escalating fight against the outbreak. Sham products from dietary supplements and food to medical devices and purported vaccines have popped up on social media and digital marketplaces. Masks and respirators that were counterfeit or deceptively labeled have been listed on Amazon and eBay. And that reminds me of how um, I thought it might like it might not only would it be convenient, but it might be a little safer, too, if I ordered some, you know, like food off of uh Amazon. I've never used Amazon Fresh because I always thought I have an Amazon Prime subscription, but it used to be the case that they charged you more money on top of that to uh, to use Amazon Fresh, which is basically, you know, Amazon bought out Whole Foods so they will actually deliver fresh groceries to you. Then I just found out that um, they kind of waived that and now your regular Prime um uh, subscription allows you to take advantage of Amazon Fresh. So I tried to like do a little shopping, and the first item I tried to add, it said, uh, "You are out of our shipping range" or something like that. Please enter a different address. <laughs> um, that'd be weird. Just like make up an ad- give a, some address on the map uh, near where they are, and then just drive and wait in the bushes for them to drop it off at the person's house. But uh, yeah, so I couldn't do that, and I have used Prime Pantry in the past. There was a lot of that was a lot of uh, unintentional alliteration, and Prime Pantry, as you probably know, it's like non-perishable items, dry goods, so like boxes of rice, cookies, crackers, that type of stuff, you know. Um, and I was thinking of doing that, and it's it's crazy, man. Even on Amazon, it's hard to find just regular spring water. Or it's like grotesquely overpriced. And there's even people selling spring water on like eBay uh, and Amazon for like 40 bucks. It's nuts. And uh, the water that was available, even though Amazon is, you know, if you're a Prime member, it's supposed to be like two days delivery. If it's, you know, a Prime eligible product. Even with Prime, they were saying that... um, you probably wouldn't get it till like the 30th of the month or something like that. So really crazy, man. And I looked for spaghetti there on Amazon and it was hard finding just like, um, you know, like, uh, trying to think what's the brand I usually get. I think it's Barilla. (laughs) It rhymes with gorilla. So yeah, even it was weird. Like even had trouble finding just regular thin spaghetti on Amazon. So it's kind of scary, man. So not only are people, um, you know, cleaning out the store shelves, but it seems like other people have the same idea as me. They're trying to get stuff, you know, from online as well. And, and you can see the, the demand on, you know, the, the toll of the demand on Amazon. It's, it's wacky. And I was going to try to have Wegmans deliver, uh, cause they deliver groceries. I think usually they do, uh, maybe it's within a couple of hours or something like that. Um, but Wegmans, they they had like it was two to three days out just to get like a grocery delivery, and I have the feeling that it might even end up being more than that. That maybe that was a, a kind of optimistic estimate, you know? Yeah. So then, televangelist Jim Baker, good old Jim Baker, actually, there's nothing good about him. Uh, and this is from NPR. 
Missouri sues televangelist Jim Baker for... Fuck you, notification. Sorry about that. <laughs> Missouri sues televangelist Jim Baker for selling fake coronavirus cure. Televan and I actually mentioned this in passing on the show. Uh, Jim Baker was advocating something called, I think, colloidal silver as some kind of, you know, panacea. Televangelist Jim Baker held up a blue and silver bottle, gazing intently at the label as he questioned the woman sitting next to him. This influenza that is now circling the globe, Baker said on February 12th, on a February 12th broadcast of the Jim Baker show, you're saying that that silver solution would be effective? His guest, the so-called natural health expert Cheryl Selman, falsely implied that the liquid would likely be effective. The coronavirus impacting more than 120,000 people worldwide does not yet have a known treatment or cure. Well, let's say it hasn't been tested on this strain of coronavirus, but it has been tested on other strains of the coronavirus and has been able to eliminate it within 12 hours, Selman said. Totally eliminate it, kills it, deactivates it. Silver solution, in quotes, has been proven by the government that it has the ability to kill every pathogen it has ever been tested on, including SARS and HIV. Selman continued, four four-ounce bottles could be yours, a message on the screen said, for just $80. Selling a fake quote-unquote treatment for the COVID-19 disease violates state and federal law. On Tuesday, the state of Missouri filed a lawsuit against Baker and his production company to stop them from advertising or selling Silver Solution and related products as treatments for the coronavirus. Yeah, so just Jim Baker being a scumbag as usual. Uh, I always remember, you know, I'm a fan of the drunken peasants. You know, I remember uh, back when TJ and his brother was still on it, just as a test, they ordered a so-called Baker bucket. You know, he's always talking about the coming apocalypse or whatever and trying to use that as a way to push his, his uh, spurious goods. And he pushes these Baker buckets, which which basically look like Home Home Depot buckets filled with slop. You know, uh, I don't know what it is. I, I think they were like macaroni buckets and stuff. And then he would literally say, "Oh, you know, while you're down your bomb shelter, you can also turn them upside down with your when you're done with them and use them as seats or whatever." And the drunken peasants ordered a so-called Baker bucket, and like a year went by or something, and they never received it. So, I don't know, man. Jim Baker. Yeah, and it's interesting. I actually posted an article to the Weekend Out Facebook page uh, earlier today about how the, uh, it seems like the current theory for how the coronavirus uh, may have came, may have come about is that uh, in one of those like Chinese animal markets that I was talking about in my um, animal welfare episode where, you know, all these dogs get, uh, I'm depressing myself. I already went into all that dark crap. But anyway, uh, at one of these, uh, these Chinese markets, um, it, it most likely came from a bat. So what they're hypothesizing is that someone was probably butchering a bat for meat and then touch their mouth or face with their dirty hand. And that may be, maybe, how the, uh, how the virus uh, started. 
scary stuff. But this is really weird. The closest thing to this that I can remember, I'm a Gen Xer, so I remember when AIDS was constantly in the news. Um, and I remember when there was like, uh, once again, I don't know if hysteria is wrong to use because it makes sense to be at least cautious or keep your wits about you and, and you know, take precautions when there's, um, you know, a dangerous communicable disease out there. But I can remember when everyone was afraid of getting AIDS and not just sexually active people, you know, uh, but there was widespread fear in general that maybe it could be transmitted via an open cut or something like that. Uh, people were afraid to shake hands with one another. So I haven't really seen anything like this and, and you know, since then. Um, but yeah, you know, scary shit. And I, I guess... Um, the government has supposedly known about this for a while now, since at least January. And I guess there's been some criticism regarding the government's response. Uh, did they act quickly enough? That sort of thing. And actually, you know, I just wanted to try to be somewhat responsible and not place blame without knowing what I'm talking about. But I just found this article from NPR dated March 12th. Uh, White House knew, uh, it says reporter, colon, White House knew of coronavirus major threat, but response fell short. Political reporter Dan Diamond says infighting at the Department of Health and Human Services and the need to flatter Trump impeded the response to the coronavirus. So this is a transcript of the show Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Uh, I think I've heard of that. I don't think I've actually ever watched or listened to an episode. Um, we're going to talk about how President Trump and some members of his administration have mismanaged the coronavirus outbreak, helping fuel the crisis. My guest, Dan Diamond, is a reporter for Politico who investigates health care policy and politics, including the Trump administration's coronavirus response. He's written about dysfunction and infighting within the administration and how that slowed the response to the spread of the virus and led to some counterproductive decisions. The virus has spread to the point where yesterday the World Health Organization declared it a pandemic, which is defined as the worldwide spread of a new disease. So, yeah, so where this really does seem like something out of a dystopian sci-fi movie. Weird, weird stuff. You know, so I think we should take reasonable precautions and we should do whatever we can to, you know, limit our chances of potentially coming into contact with the virus. But I think the mortality rate is only, I say only, 3.4%. And that would be very cold comfort if you're one of the people who come down with it or test positive or you lose a loved one because of it. So this is why, even though, you know, it, it, we should remember that, that if, if you're healthy and you have the misfortune of contracting this or testing positive, most likely you're going to survive it, you know. But we do have to, you know, take precautions, not, not just for ourselves, but for loved ones and for other vulnerable people out there. I, I discussed this with a listener via, Patre via, via Patreon last night that, you know, people with respiratory disorders in particular and, you know, the elderly, uh, these are people who are um, seriously at risk. And uh, so 
both those people and those of us who could potentially catch it and give it to one of those people, we do have to be as careful, you know, we do have to t be mindful, take precautions. Hey everyone, so I'm back a couple of days later through the magic of editing. I don't know what the hell's wrong with me, but I've really been kind of slow to get content out lately. I'm not exactly sure why. I'm still as into, you know, doing the show as I've always been. Uh, but for some reason, I've just been dragging my feet. I think one week I just kind of fell behind schedule, you know, with getting the show out on time. And then it just kind of snowballed. And now, you know, I think like three three weeks in a row now, I've been kind of late getting episodes out. And whenever this happens, I like to kind of joke, you know, self-deprecatingly that it reaches a point where the show becomes, you know, that I'm releasing the show so late that I'm not sure if I should say, you know, last week's episode is late or it's actually this week's episode I'm early. <laughs> I don't know. But I'll try to get back on schedule. I think traditionally I've always, you know, attempted to get an, a new episode out somewhere between Thursday and Sunday. But anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. The reason why I decided to, you know, jump back in two days later and continue recording is because things have kind of changed in the last couple of days. Uh, I was going to end the show on somewhat of a, a cherry, for lack of a better word, note, by trying to remind everyone that, you know, it, it is scary. It is technically a pandemic, and it's rare that we find ourselves in this kind of situation. But you know, I, I, was, I was going to emphasize the low mort the relatively low mortality rate and the fact that, you know, if you're relatively young, relatively healthy, if you do have the misfortune of contracting uh, the coronavirus, aka COVID-19, that, you know, you're probably going to be all right. And we just got to, you know, play it cool, take common sense precautions to not expose yourselves or, you know, risk exposing someone else. Um, but over the last two, uh, two days, I think this is just Italy now, um, mind you. I here in the States, it might still be a mortality. I hate that pop. Whenever I talked about this on the last bonus episode, when I start recording and my computer, you know, starts to run hot, and I think the monitor warms up. It, I think the plastic is expanding and there's this uh, annoying little pop you hear. And usually I'll have to go back and try to record whatever I was saying when that, uh, you know, re-record whatever I was saying when that happens. But screw it. I'm not going to bother. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think here in the States, the mortality rate might still be something like 3.4%. But Italy, we know basically all of Italy... <sighs> has basically been on lockdown. Um, I guess the mortality rate has risen to about 8% in Italy. Um, and it seems like now younger people, you know, the thinking was that it was older people, people who had uh, kind of pre-existing conditions that made them uh, especially susceptible, you know, like respiratory conditions, etc. Uh, now, relatively healthy young people in Italy are supposedly ending up in the ICU. 
so scary stuff. And I, do, I can't remember if I already said this to you guys, but here um, in Massachusetts, uh, right in my hometown here of Burlington, um, school was being canceled for two weeks or, you know, shut down, closed or whatever, the public schools. Uh, it's been extended to three weeks now. Um, within the last couple of days, they've announced that uh, you can still get takeout for, from restaurants, but um, dining in is a no-go. It seems kind of weird because it. I get what they're doing. I think that's definitely smart, but um, I don't know. I'm not trying to scaremonger or anything, but I'm still thinking about, like, even if you order food for takeout, you still have to have another person. Oh, there's that annoying pop again. Jesus, man. Uh, said the atheist. But, <laughs> figure of speech. But, um, but, you know, even if you're ordering takeout, it's still that still requires you getting handed food from another person. So there's still some element of risk. Um... So it's definitely crazy. And my brother and I were remodeling a garage in um in Burlington here in Burlington, Mass. And I think I I mentioned that I don't know if she'd want me saying this on the air, but it's for the it's for the mother of that friend I had who passed away. Um also named Phil, passed away on uh, my birthday. And I think it was the same night that uh, the Joker movie hit theaters. Uh, not saying there's any connection. I'm just saying, you know, because of these things, I remember the exact day when I found out. Um, so in kind of memory of him, because he used to keep his motorcycle, which he loved in that garage, um, she decided to have us redo the garage, you know, finish it for her. And it actually looks pretty damn good. It almost looks like, you know, you could move in and live there and live in the garage. Um, but we were supposed to start a new job in the town or city of Newton, Mass, this morning. Um, but because this virus is affecting everything, it's also affected, um, you know, the, the town hall and all that. And so, um, for some reason, because of the virus, they're not accepting uh, building permit requests online. You have to go in person, which seems kind of backwards to me, but maybe I uh, maybe I heard wrong. But something to do with the virus and the precautions and changes that are being put in place, um, it, it prevented us from getting uh, the necessary permits. You know, for the. Uh, Something to do with the electrical and the plumbing uh, permits um, specifically. So I didn't end up, uh, we were supposed, I, I originally was supposed to be in Newton, you know, gutting a room all day, you know, getting re ready to redo a kitchen. Um, but I ended up only doing like a half day, uh, some little, you know, kind of busy work. Um, and then it looks like we're not going to be there tomorrow either. This whole building permit thing still has to be uh, worked out. Um, I think usually it's just one permit. I know this is kind of probably tedious, boring stuff. And the different inspectors come and all sign off on the same permit. But there was something to do with the plum, you know, the plumbing and electrical inspectors specifically that were holding up the permit or something. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I mean, 
uh, this uh, virus seems to be affecting everything. And then uh, they also said today on the news that looks like Uncle Donald is uh, might be sliding us a couple of thousand bucks each or something like that. Um, something like that. So some kind of, you know, stimulus package to, to kind of help get people through. Uh, because obviously, like me, for example, you know, this is affecting people's work. And it always seems like, really? The government's just going to give me money? Um, so if you haven't heard anything about this, don't necessarily, you know, get your hopes up. And, you know, you might want to double check that. But uh, the last I heard is that it was supposedly like a $2,000 per citizen stimulus package or something like that. Um, I can remember when Bush, uh, President Bush did that stimulus package. What was it, like 500 bucks or something? I forget. Uh, but yeah, definitely weird times we're living in. Uh, but once again, I think the, the key thing is to just, you know, chill and try to keep everything in perspective. Uh, remember, that's still relatively, relatively, I'm speaking, because I don't want to come off as callous, you know, talking about um, the mortality rate. Because uh, like I said, for those who end up dying because of this illness or whose loved ones end up dying because of this illness, it's very cold comfort to say, you know, well, well it was a relatively low mortality rate. But for those of you who are, um, you know, relatively healthy and um, you're taking the necessary, you know, common sense precautions. I think, you know, you're going to be all right. And as a society, we're going to get through this. Um, but yeah, I guess with that, I'll call it a wrap. Uh, as always, thanks for listening, everyone. And you guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter. Um you can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. And I'm going to try to catch up with the YouTube versions of the episodes, maybe with some of this downtime, you know. So you guys might get two YouTube videos out in the near future. Uh, one for this episode and one for the episode before this. Um, and that might take me a couple of days. And uh, I was going to say, you know, if you want to support the show, <laughs> you can go to patreon.com slash The Weekend Out and support what I do for as little as 99 cents a month. And I understand that things, uh, you know, are going to be kind of precarious and a lot of people's um, financial well-being might be uh, affected by this whole thing. So um, I don't want to seem callous by kind of e-begging here, but eh, I mention it at the end of every show, so... Yeah, why not? Uh, all right, brothers and sisters, until next time. Mm -hmm.